Hello, and welcome to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by Nualtra, the innovative medical nutrition company dedicated to improving patients' lives who specialize in affordable supplements. My name is Corinne Toyne, and I'm a registered dietitian and marketing specialist at HRS Communications. We invite you to drop into the Dietitian Cafe as we discuss the latest nutrition trends, topics, and research. Every month, two episodes are released. One is an interview with a featured guest and the other a debate highlighting a hot topic in the world of nutrition and dietetics. However, before I start, can I ask you a huge favor? If you enjoyed the Dietitian Cafe podcast, we'd be super grateful if you could press that follow button. More subscribers means more exciting guests and more interesting conversations for you, our listeners. Thank you. So grab a cuppa and join me for another inspiring interview episode as we take a look at the fascinating world of nutrition for elite athletes. Our guest today has worked with some of the best, including the likes of Liverpool Football Club and Team Sky for the Tour de France, as well as authoring over 200 research publications in the field of exercise metabolism, as well as exercise physiology and sports nutrition. It is our pleasure to welcome Professor James Morton. I'll hand over to James to tell you a little bit more about himself. Well, hello, everyone. Um, first of all, thanks for inviting me on the podcast today. It, it's a Friday afternoon, so it's always nice to do these things on a Friday afternoon. Um, I guess, as you can hear from my accent, I'm from Belfast originally, and I, I came to Liverpool in the, in the year 2000 as an undergraduate student to do sports science. Um, and I've stayed here ever since because I, I absolutely love Liverpool. Um, I'm now a professor of exercise metabolism in the University of Liverpool, John Moores University. And I've been very fortunate over the last 20 or years or so to work in a number of different sports, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, as, as well as working across industry. So I guess I'm, I'm quite lucky and I've seen sport nutrition and sports science from many different angles, really. Amazing. Thank you, James. What a career so far. I am so looking forward to this conversation. So as we do with all podcasts on the show, we start with a quick, a few quick fire questions to get to know you better. So the first one is, what's your favorite day of the week? Well, probably Fridays, I think, <laughs> or Saturdays. Um, I think Friday just is the nice end to the week. And if you've had a good week, then you always end it on a, a nice feeling. And then, of course, Saturday is sports day, isn't it? And I think yeah. most, most of us like sport, actually. So Saturday is always a good day of the week. Wonderful. I'm glad we've got you on your favourite day. It's a, a lucky day. And the second question is, what's your go-to TV series at the moment? Yeah, I, I don't really watch much TV, if I'm being <laughs> honest. Um, and I don't really get into series either. But I guess the last series that I really got into a while ago now was Peaky Blinders. Oh, yeah. Maybe just because Tommy Shelby's just so cool. Yeah. I wanted to be Tommy <laughs> Shelby. <laughs> he is very cool. What amazing! Yeah, that actually all the cast is is an amazing you know set of people. That was such a good show. Totally agree on that one. Yeah, I mean, have you seen Last of Us? On no. uh, it's a zombie type of program. No, well, that's a good one. That's been my favourite so far. So if you are looking for series, then and that's a good one. Let's crack on with the episode questions. The first question is, could you start by telling us what initially attracted you to the world of sports nutrition? Well, I actually started off being more interested in sports physiology. Um, I was obsessed by fitness growing up and how do you become fit and 
what happens if you change your training routine to do this and so on. And that's why I got interested in sports science. Um, and my ambition back then, really, when I was a young student, was to be the fitness coach for Liverpool Football Club. But as I progressed through my degree and I started doing more research, and especially when I did my undergraduate dissertation, I realized that I loved the research side of things and I loved being in the lab. And I actually published my undergraduate research paper. It was on altitude training. And I just really fell in love with the research side of things. So I progressed on to a PhD, which was muscle physiology, muscle metabolism. But I always liked that applied element of trying to apply things in the real world. And of course, the applied aspect of metabolism is indeed nutrition, mm-hmm. whereas the applied element of physiology is, is fitness, if you like. Um, so I slowly stumbled across sport nutrition, and I then did a postdoctoral research study, which actually had a nutritional intervention around carbohydrate. And it was quite interesting at the time because that study was it was a training study. So we had three groups of individuals, three groups of subjects that trained for six weeks, four times a week. And one of the groups actually trained with low carbohydrate availability, which, of course, is the opposite of what the textbook would tell you to do. And when we pulled out all of the, all of the muscle biopsies, both in the thigh and the, and the calf, actually, so the vastus lateralis and the gastrocnemius muscles, and we seen that the group who trained with low carbohydrate availability actually had greater changes in the aerobic enzymes than the other groups. So in effect, they actually got more aerobically adapted, if you like, which was the opposite of what the textbook would tell you to do. And so that blew my mind, really, because here you have three groups of people performing exactly the same training sessions, same intensity, same duration, but actually those people who trained with low carbohydrate their muscles responded completely differently. Mm. So I guess from that point forth, really, I then really became interested in in sport nutrition, but more specifically around the concept of when you change nutrient availability before, during, or after training sessions, then you can change how the muscle adapts to exercise training. And then my research career then really went off on the nutrition metabolism route as opposed to the physiology route, if you like. Mm-hmm. So some really groundbreaking research then that you've been involved in that essentially goes against, you know, what we know traditionally in the world of sports, exercise and nutrition. So it sounds like you've been, you know, involved in some really exciting projects. Yeah, I was quite lucky at that time. Um, that The whole field of carbohydrate periodization, which has probably been one of the biggest developments in the last 20 years. Um, our research group at, at Liverpool, we were kind of there as that field was developing and along with other laboratories worldwide, Australians, um, there was a group in Canada, a group in Belgium, a group in Birmingham. We were all kind of doing the same stuff and that field then really took off. And then of course you start applying that stuff with the athletes that you're working with at the time. Mm-hmm. But that, that was around 2007, eight, nine. Some of those early studies came out and then it, I guess the next decade really was all around that concept of, periodizing carbohydrate availability. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. In the introduction, we highlighted some incredible sports teams that you've worked with and the roles that you've held. Could you share a bit more about your journey within sports nutrition? And also, could you tell us any of your career highlights so far? Yeah, well, as I started really getting into it as an applied practitioner during my PhD. and In fact, uh, 
Liverpool's quite a hotbed for boxing, um, amateur boxing. And I actually stopped playing football for a while and, and I decided, right, I need to keep fit. So I just walked into a boxing gym off the street um, and the boxers at the time found out what I did for a job and then they asked me to help them with some of their nutritional plans. So I was just working voluntarily with amateur boxers. Um, then some of the professionals in the gym found out what I did and then I started supporting them. Um, and then I thought, actually, sport nutrition is probably a career that people could go down. Even though I had my academic career, I thought, actually, I can do this as well. I applied for a couple of jobs in football teams and never got them because I didn't really have any experience at the time. And then, thankfully, I, I managed to get the job at Liverpool Football Club, which was on my doorstep. So it was fate, really, I think. Mm. Um, I spent five years then as the nutritionist for Liverpool Football Club. And then I became a bit stale, I think. In, the, in year four and year five, I kind of, I wouldn't say lost enthusiasm, but probably wasn't learning at the rate that you should be learning in your career. And then I got the opportunity to work for Team Sky, the cycling team. And that, that was a huge opportunity for me because not only were you working with some of the best endurance athletes in the world, where nutrition really is the difference between winning and losing, but it was also a real high performance team with mm -hmm. performance leadership and culture. And that really chimed with me. That was right up my street. Um, so then I made the decision to move to Sky. And I had a fantastic five years. That, that, that team won the Tour de France five years in a row, which is like winning the Champions League five years in a row in football. Um, and then over the years, I've also worked for Science and Sport, the nutrition company, um, informing their research strategy and helping to create new products. Most recently, I've started working for Ineos Sport, we actually bought Team Sky when Team Sky ended. Um, they've just bought 25% of Manchester United Football Club. And they also partner with lots of other sports. So my whole career really has been a series of little chapters, if you like. But research and applied practice has always been the two pillars that I've always come back to. And, mm -hmm. and as I said, I'm very, very fortunate that I've had a career that allows me to dip in and out of both of those worlds. Yeah, absolutely incredible. I think as well, and with this sport, because you can be so specific and so precise. And as you say, it's it's the smallest of gains that can win a match or a race or whatever it is. Um, I suppose having that science under your belt really makes it, it kind of, you know, the science, it brings the science to life and being able to see that in, in the players that you work with and the athletes must be amazing. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the, the great things about sport nutrition but probably just nutrition in general, Karine, actually, is that when you when you deliver an intervention, you can almost see an impact sometimes, mm. sometimes within hours of the intervention. Whereas other academics, and certainly when I was doing my PhD research, which was muscle physiology, you may get really interesting stuff, but it doesn't really change practice. And so you could spend your whole career with research that just sits in journals in the top shelf of the library. Yeah, But when you enter an applied world like ours, you can apply that research and really make an impact. And that's mm -hmm. a, one of the most rewarding things you can have in your career is, is impacting people. Yeah, totally. And that's actually my next question for you around what do you find most rewarding about working in the field of sports nutrition? Would you say that's it or is anything, there anything else? Yeah, I, I would say definitely impacting athletes. I mean, my big passion is performance of, of 
if I was to describe myself, I'd just say that I'm super interested in performance. Um, so definitely impacting people to perform better. But actually, if I'm being totally honest, one of the things I've enjoyed the most is about 10 years ago now, myself and Graham Close, who's another professor that I share an office with, we started a master's program in sport nutrition at Liverpool John Moores. And, and there was no master's programs in the UK at the time really doing that. And the most rewarding thing that I've experienced in my career is that every year there's 30 students come through that program. And year by year, the amount of students that now work in high profile roles in professional sport is, is mind boggling. Like it really is mind boggling. There's very few sports teams that you can go into now. And somewhere there isn't a connection back to Liverpool John Moores. Mm. I think that's what I'm probably most proud of is, is the people yeah. that help to produce and the impact that they're now having in sport, which is as far more rewarding than anything I've personally achieved myself. Mm, that's really lovely to hear. And yeah, amazing that you're building that future workforce as well of, of great sports nutritionists that can go on then to help elite athletes. So why do you think then that a sports nutritionist is so important for elite athletes? Are you able to kind of summarise why? Well, the, the world of sport is chaotic and um, dynamic and unpredictable, and there's very thing, very few things you can control. You can't control if you can win. We're just not in control of that. You can't really control how you perform on any given time. But in the world of nutrition, what you can control is what you eat. So it's probably one of the few things that you can actually control in such a chaotic environment. And actually, nutrition really can be the difference between winning and losing especially in sports like the endurance sports or the weight restricted sports, but even in the team sports, if it's congested fixture schedule and so on, you can really make such a positive difference to performance. Mm -hmm. And I think as the industry is developing, because this is still a, a relatively young industry, but as it is developing, uh, more athletes, more coaches, more sports teams are now becoming aware of the role of nutrition in influencing and impacting performance. And you've, you can now see that most of the high-profile sports teams are employing sport nutritionists or sports dietitians that have come through that professional pathway, if you like. Mm. So do you think then that every elite athlete or team does have access now to a sports nutritionist or dietitian? Um, not yet, no. Um, I think when I started out, I mean, even when I started at Liverpool in 2010, most of the nutritionists working in football at the time were consultants. So they were dipping in one, two, maybe three days per week. And as you went down the lower leagues, it was more the sports scientists or the doctors providing that advice. Uh, over 10 years later, things have changed. Most professional teams now, I would say, employ at least one sport nutritionist. Some of them employ three or four sport nutritionists. So the field really is developing. Um, and again, that's because they're becoming more aware of the role of nutrition and in influencing performance Training, training adaptation, sleep, recovery, health, body composition, the list goes on. Mm. Becoming a real integral role within that multidisciplinary performance team. For those teams that don't have a nutritional staffing base yet, it's probably because of lack of finances to employ them, or it may be lack of awareness of the role of nutrition. And so there's still a big piece for us to do, hence why things like this podcast and things is, is so important to, to get the word out there, really. Yeah, totally. I think that's so encouraging that 
you know there is so much more opportunities for sports nutrition it's such a fascinating area of of uh yeah nutrition so hopefully people listening will be really enthused to hear that and just going back to the multidisciplinary team that you mentioned there do you always work in the context of an mdt and if so what does that look like well if, if performance is done properly um I mean, the, the future of performance is collaboration. There's no doubt about that. But it's not just collaboration, it's disciplined collaboration. And what I mean by that is the right specialists all contributing to an athlete performance plan. And so when you break down the components of performance, whether it's technical, tactical, physical, psychological, medical, whatever it may be, all of those experts need to create a performance plan of how that athlete can improve. And the role of the nutritionist is, of course, to help those other experts do their role better because nutrition can definitely impact physical, technical, tactical, psychological. And of course, nutrition can also influence um, many other areas such as recovery and sleep and illness and health. And so really the nutritionist should be working in, as part of that team with the athlete themselves and creating that plan that all of the stakeholders around the table are aligned on what you're trying to coach or improve in the next four, five, six weeks. You tick that one off the box and then you move on to the next one. And then performance is continually improving. Where nutrition used to operate, I think, was very much a service delivery. And, and you still see this in America, actually, in the States with sports dietitians. It's, it's pretty much like a food delivery service. But actually, it's for me, it's about performance. So it needs to come back to each individual athlete how can we use nutrition to create an individualized performance plan mm -hmm. to make this athlete perform better within their sport at the right times? Mm. It's not quite complex. And when you're assessing a team of, you know, 15 plus footballers, for example, so you're looking at them as an individual and they've all got their own, uh, you know, goals uh, physically and nutritionally, you're working with them on a on a case-by-case -case basis you're not really setting uh blanket recommendations well the way that we try and work is that we'll have a um, like a minimum standards if you like so there, there should be a minimal level of service provision within a given sports team but then you have to go into the individual athlete and, and ask yourself right what is the opportunity for improvement within this specific individual so every sport usually has a list of performance priorities it may be fueling, hydration, recovery, body composition, training adaptations, performing in extreme environments, heat, cold, altitude, sleep, etc., etc. But when you hone into each individual, you may have one athlete that's actually already 10 out of 10 on fueling, but they might not be great at recovery. You could have another athlete who's the opposite. They may be great at recovery, but consistently under fuels. Or you may have an athlete who's perhaps too heavy or too light, or an athlete who's continually getting injured and so on. And so then actually you think we've got all of these performance priorities. We're going to deliver a minimal standard of service. But when we hone into each individual athlete, what's limiting performance for one person may not be limiting performance for another. Mm -hmm. And that's your role as a coach then, because that, that's what we really are. We're coaches. We're trying to improve people. So your role then as a coach is to work with that individual and identify how that person could improve. And the mistake that I made early on in my career, because I just hadn't been mentored really to think of it like this, was to almost give everyone the same thing. 
but then you, you end up impacting no one. And then once you start to actually think about each individual, then you can actually start to make quite a big difference to performance. And once I got that and it resonated, then I became completely better as a practitioner. Mm -hmm. Okay, good to know. So say you have an athlete stood in front of you and you are undertaking a nutritional assessment of them. What considerations are you thinking about when, when assessing their requirements and what anthropometric measures might typically be used? Well, even before I think of nutrition, the first thing I think about is, is what is the training structure of this athlete and the competition structure. And I, quite often I, I try and teach this to younger students and practitioners as they instantly jump into the dietary plans. But you can't give an athlete a dietary plan until you understand what it is you're trying to do. And that comes back to the structure of the sport. When do they train? How often do they train? When do they compete and how often do they compete? So once you have that athlete's schedule, so to speak, then the next question is what is the energy requirements of this sport? And, and that's so important because that's our fundamental goal is fueling the energy demands of the sport, both for training and for competition. And once you've then quantified the energy demands or the, maybe in the literature or the sports team may have their own data and so on, you can then start off with what I would call as the first performance priority, which is just fueling. So making sure that athlete has a dietary plan in place, usually centered around behaviors that will allow them to meet the energy requirements of the sport. That's fundamental really. Um, but then you dig a little bit deeper and you may have an athlete that has specific goals. They may have body composition changes. There may be other performance priorities in the sport that are more critical. You may be training for endurance, strength, power, and so on. And then you need to then really hone in with that individualized plan. Your question actually alluded to body composition straight away. Mm. Quite telling, actually, because I think a lot of sport nutritionists think it's all about body composition and change the body composition first, which to me is probably one of the places that you go to down the line once the other um, pieces of the cake are in place, so to speak. Okay. <laughs> well, on the on the body composition side, we do um, skinfold measurements using skinfold calipers, or it may be more sophisticated techniques like DEXA. And mm -hmm. so, every athlete should have um, a, a typical body composition that they're trying to achieve to perform optimally. I think a lot of people get that wrong. Actually, they try and become too light. Sometimes there's pressures from coaches and managers to become too light. Sometimes the athlete themselves start to think, if I'm lighter, I perform better, which doesn't always happen. And so that's why I usually try and approach body composition somewhere down the line. But having said that, I mean, I have to be honest, that if you take a sport like cycling, one or two kilograms weight loss can be the difference between winning and losing. Wow. If it's a if it's a weight restricted sport, if you don't make weight and you can't get on the scales, then you can't compete. Mm. So make no mistake about it. Body composition or body mass is is a big component of performance nutrition, but sometimes overinterpreted and too much importance is placed on it. Mm. And I suppose, yeah, there's kind of external pressures, isn't there, as a society around uh, body composition and, and aesthetics, potentially, and that might have a role to play, do you think? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you see it a lot in the female sports. Um, we, we have just done some research lately in, in women's football. 
we we actually did a qualitative piece of research, which is totally new to me because I'm used to taking muscle biopsies out of people. <laughs> but lo and behold, we did a qualitative study that was led by Sam McAfee, one of our PhD students. And that was one of the, my most enjoyable papers to be involved in over the last few years. But mm. Sam actually went away and he interviewed players. Um, so these are England international players, by the way. Wow. Coaches, uh, stakeholders, parents, physiotherapists, doctors, and so on. And we really just tried to ascertain the level of understanding of how nutrition may impact player development and performance. And quite a lot of people talked about body composition. And then players talked about, yeah, we are, we know that fueling is important, but actually we're under pressure to look a certain way. Um, we're also under pressure to have a certain body composition. Um, some players were reporting that when they get their skin folds done, they're placed into red, amber, or green zones, whether it's good, bad, or in the middle. And so therefore, as a result, they consciously underfuel because mm. they want to get into the green zone. So in that situation, mm. then you've tried to get a player into a good body composition, but it's counterproductive to performance because they're not fueling. Yeah. Yeah. So it, must... it can just be so chaotic this world at times. Yeah, can yeah, totally. I, we, I, I learned a little bit about sports nutrition at university, so we covered a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, I do find it fascinating, and it, it must be so difficult to, to balance um, the two. So yeah, can can see how that'd be tricky. What about biochemical measures? Do you test for those? And if you do, what do you look at? Yeah, I mean, every sport's different, and there's there's a time and a place, and and of course, there's also a time in the season when you need to dial up things and dial up the intensity. There's also times you need to step back because athletes aren't robots. Um, but let's let's take a Tour de France as an example. Twelve weeks out from a Tour de France, usually a rider is increasing their training intensity and their volume. They're usually trying to lose some weight as well, and so the danger therefore is that you're you're on a bit of a tightrope and you want to be coming into the tour on the upward curve, I would say like 90 to 95% on the way up rather than overcooking it 100 to 105%. And by the third week of the tour, you fall out the other side. So in terms of biochemical measures, then we might be looking at a lot of um, things in the buildup to the race, perhaps every one, two, three, four week intervals, looking at endocrine profiles, for example, it could be testosterone is a good one as a marker of, um, well, not, not so much overtraining, but almost energy availability. What we tend to see is that if someone is um, restricting energy intake too much, then their testosterone starts to fall. So that's a nice sign that actually we've got to pull things back. If you're going to altitude training camps, then you may be looking at the effects of the altitude uh, stimulus so you could be looking at hematological profiles um, you could be looking at some of the micronutrient type statuses but it's, it tends to be more around overtraining markers and mm -hmm. I think I've, I've found a lot of success in the endocrine profile really mm, okay that's that's really interesting what about vitamin d any kind of research around vitamin d yeah we, we've done a few papers over the years it was um Graham Closer, I mentioned before, a lot of his research career was was around vitamin D and we collaborated on that. In fact, I published a paper, one of the first ones on footballers, showing the, the classical decline in the wintertime. Mm. We measured them in August and we measured them in December and we've seen a 50% reduction in vitamin D status. So then, of course, you supplement with the yeah. relevant 
dose, which is always changing. We're always changing what we think the optimal dose is. So things like vitamin D, iron, um, iron status, and so on, is they're, they're things that we probably should be measuring at the right times in the season. Okay. So that's a good segue then onto nutritional advice. And we've spoken about this a little bit, but does your work with elite athletes ever involve implementing strict meal plans? Yeah, it, it can do, but it has to be at the right time for the right person. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that some people like a, a set plan of eat this in this amount at this time for this reason. Others would like more dietary guidelines that they, and I, I actually prefer to work that way because then you're coaching them to make choices for themselves. But having said that, when the when the pressure's on and you're up, you need to lose that last two kilograms or something. You, we tend to really do provide more more plans. I mean, sometimes we'll actually provide the food for them all in the correct weights and quantities and so on, just to really look after the details, really. Um, and that can make a big difference because, of course, then you're taking the decisions away from the athlete and they can just concentrate on mm. training, eating and sleeping. But as I mentioned before, I, I prefer to coach in a way that they make their own decisions and, and over time they know what to do themselves. Okay. And those types of meal plans that you provide, have they evolved over the years? Like, Do they, they're quite a lot of variety in flavour or is it kind of the traditional rice and chicken and vegetables? No, no, it's 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 evolved a lot actually. And I'd say one of my biggest weaknesses, I, I, I'm very good at providing the numbers, but I'm not very good at providing the foods. <laughs> uh, so I need a chef to work with me to be successful without doubt. I was very lucky at Team Sky because of the quality of the chefs that we had. Mm. My philosophy as a practitioner was always based around fairly moderate to high protein intakes and then periodized carbohydrate intakes. Mm -hmm. But in a meal by meal, day by day approach, your protein intake was pretty constant, but your carbohydrate intake would change depending on what you were trying to do that particular day in terms of the session or the, the overall energy intake that you were trying to hit. And so we would work with a chef and we would say, right, we need this to be a, a low carbohydrate meal, a medium carbohydrate or a high carbohydrate meal. And then the chef would obviously go away and, and create those things. So mm -hmm. you could say that I've kind of worked a little bit more as um, like an architect, if you like, but then the chef goes and builds the plate. Yeah. Well, that's quite collaborative then, really. And I suppose you're going to, in that role, be able to have to communicate exactly what you need to the chef. So there's quite a lot of communication skills obviously required in that partnership. So broadly speaking, then, is that how your advice differs depending on the sport type? So consistent with the protein, but varying carbohydrate depending on the athlete? Yeah, I mean, every sport's different. As, as I mentioned before, the first thing to look at with the sport is the energy demands. It, and actually, we, we've done lots of research over the last 10 years using doubly labelled water to measure energy expenditure of athletes. So a Tour de France cyclist, as an example, could expend anything from 3,000 to 8,000 calories per day, depending on what their training looks like or depending if it's in a race. A professional footballer would probably expend anything from two and a half thousand to four thousand, 
um, a female player, maybe 2,000 to 3,500, a younger player. In fact, younger players, rightly or wrongly, we've just found out are expending the same calories as adult players. That's a whole other story. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is you look at the energy demands of the sport, then I think you pretty much keep the protein constant, usually around two grams per kilogram of body mass. And then you adapt the carbohydrate intake depending on the energy demands of that day. So the carbohydrate intake could range from as much as, or sorry, as little as three grams per kilogram per day. I've actually seen Tour de France cyclists eat 18 grams per kilogram per day, wow. which, which people think is not possible, but it is because I've, <laughs> I've seen it. I've delivered it to them. I've watched them eat it. So my approach has always been moderate to high protein intake and then a sliding scale of carbohydrate, depending on what you need to do for that particular sport, for that particular day and that particular meeting. And that's why we, we termed it carbohydrate periodization. But really, I tried to communicate it under the principle of fueling for the work required. Mm -hmm. that, okay, became, that became quite sticky, actually, Corinne, as, as a message. People people got that message, fueling for the work required. Mm, yeah. uh, a lot of practitioners now use that phrase. I, I hear athletes using that phrase. Yeah, you coined it. That's brilliant. It's well, so simple to remember, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I'm even thinking myself, I mean, you know, on my runs i'm thinking how can i apply some of this knowledge i'll just pretend i'm an elite athlete um in my dreams um but yeah no that is really interesting and could you provide us an overview of how strategies for nutrition change in the preparation for and during a race when it comes to training with elite athletes yeah well in in preparation for a race it and you've We've also got to remember that endurance sports are different. People think cycling and running are like endurance and they're all the same, but they're not. They're completely different events. Um, the preparation for the event, let's say it's a marathon as an example, then you should be carbohydrate loading at least for 36 hours before the race. And I still see amateurs and professionals that don't do this. And I'm talking like world-class marathon runners that still don't eat enough carbohydrate the day before a race. Mm. That's goal number one. You then obviously need a high carbohydrate pre-exercise meal. And then during the race itself, if it's a marathon, I would probably say it's still at least 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour. But marathoners typically under fuel, in my experiences, and the research would also say that. So in that situation, you're preparing and you're fueling for a single event. Now, an event like the Tour de France is totally different because you're trying to perform for 21 days in a row. And actually, when the stage starts at 11 a.m. in the morning and it finishes at 5 p.m. in the afternoon, you've then only got 18 hours to recover to then go again. And the biggest thing in the Tour de France is you need to fuel each stage well, but each stage may not need super high fueling demands because it could be a flat stage. There may be no mountains. You may have a rider who's actually trying to really keep their weight low. And so therefore they fueled the way the textbook tells them to fuel. They probably put on weight in the race, but then you may have a block of the race where it might be three or four days in the mountains, super high intensity days. You've got to fuel really well before, during and after to sustain performance over that block. So the Tour de France is like a, it's like a little puzzle. Yeah. 
but piece it all together and think of the puzzle that's ahead of you. And and every year the route's different. Mm. And for me, it was like it's it's the ultimate test of a sport nutritionist. If if you can work in that race, I think you learn lots of skill sets that you can just go and work in any other sport, to be honest. Do you think that's the most challenging then, the Tour de France? Without doubt. Wow. Because it's the extremes of physiology. It's the extremes of fueling. Yeah. But you're also walking on a bit of a tightrope because you can't really put on weight and you also don't want to lose weight. Because mm. a one or two kilo swing either way is catastrophic to performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I mean, it just sounds unbelievable. And it is such a great race to watch as well. So I'm going to send this uh, this recording to my dad because he's a big Tour de France. So rather than watching the football, we'd watch Tour de France. And so he's a big cyclist. So I'm sure hearing you say that, that it's, you know, the biggest challenge is, yeah, you speak in his language because I've sort of grown up watching Tour de France and really appreciating how challenging it is. It's amazing watching these, these riders go on and, you know, win so many times. And obviously a part of that so yeah congratulations to all the success that you had with them yeah it, it was a great time i mean we were very lucky we had three well it was three different riders in my time that won the tour de france so three outstanding riders but i would say the the culture within the team was very much positive around nutrition mm-hmm. staff believed in it the riders believed in it we all collectively believed in it it was a positive nutrition culture which then makes your job so much easier Right. And you spoke then briefly about the fact that some marathon runners underfuel. What other nutritional challenges might be seen when working with elite athletes? Well, there's, there's lots of different challenges. Um, it, it, it can all depend on the sport, to be honest. So if you take it back to the performance priorities, which in, in my language, I've always used fueling, hydration, recovery, body composition, extreme environments, heat, cold, altitude, sleep, injury, and health. Um, And then also you need to try and use training, use nutrition to influence training adaptation. But because every sport is different, then lots of the sports have kind of different challenges. Some of them are walking that tightrope between fueling and body composition. Some of them just have a culture where nutrition isn't really practiced. And so in that situation, lack of knowledge isn't really the problem. It's more about changing the culture of the sport. Um, you've got sports like the weight restricted sports where they just probably don't eat enough for too long. Mm, is that like boxing, for example? Boxing, MMA, and they, they just crash and burn. I mean, we, we published the paper a few years ago with a, an MMA fighter, not using our intervention. It was an observational study. And, and this guy, over the course of eight weeks, lost 18% body mass. Wow. Of which I think about 9 or 10% was in the 24 hours before the fight. Um, wow. It was all dehydration. He gave himself mm. a kidney injury. Oh, no. Um, so you can kind of see how every sport has their own little culture. Mm. And then you've got to almost tackle the culture of the sport as well before you can even begin to intervene with nutrition. Okay. That is incredibly interesting. I I wouldn't have even thought about it like that, but yeah, because there's such a variety in sport. And as you say, sometimes it's not just about changing the behavior. It's about changing the the history of, of the sport and where, where you're at. And that's obviously a really hard feat. Um, 
But yeah. So let's touch on supplement use. As I'm aware, this is a key theme in sports nutrition. And at your role at Science in Sport, are you involved in the development of sports products? Yes, yes. So my role at Science and Sport is the um, kind of like the chief scientific officer, if you like. So I'm, I'm responsible for the research strategy and direction of the company, ultimately with the remit to make evidence-based products that, that actually improve performance. So as an example, I mean, we spoke before, you're a Science and Sport user. So if you think of one of the products like Beta Fuel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know it. So Beta Fuel is a dual source carbohydrate product, maltodextrin and fructose, formulated at a ratio of one to eight. And we first used that with Team Sky many years ago. Um, in 2022, we published a paper in the Journal of Applied Physiology showing that cyclists can ingest 120 grams of carbohydrates per hour using the beta fuel range with no gastrointestinal problems. And they were able to oxidize that carbohydrate at a peak rate of oxidation between 1.5 and 1.8 grams per minute. So that, that's a classic example of how I believe science and innovation should work because yeah. you've now got a product that you've done some research on, you've proven that it works, it's tolerated, it's then used by some of the best athletes in the world, but also amateur athletes like yourself. And so then you, you close the loop. It's an evidence-based product that improves performance and makes a difference and, of course, is safe to use. Uh, and that's really what we're trying to do, is make evidence-based products that make a difference and are um, obviously safe and legal to use. Mm -hmm. That's very cool to say that you're using the same gel that a uh, Tour de France athlete has used. That's a very, very cool claim. And yeah, as you were talking there about the science, I think it, it validates everything that you do as a as a sports nutritionist, having that science to to back up your recommendations. And that obviously is so validating and um and great when you're when you're, you know, recommending a certain advice to sports athletes. It's it's great to know there is science to support your your kind of recommendation. So yeah. And the legal implications, obviously, that's interesting to talk about. There are legal implications for professionals around anti-doping. How can a sports nutritionist help to advocate safe use of supplements? Well, the, the easiest way to do it is just to use products that are informed sport registered. Um, and so if it's an informed sport registered product, then you know that it's been tested for banned substances and that therefore the risk of contamination is, is minimal, if you like. Um, so without doubt, it's, it's just something simple. And when you see that informed sport logo on the product, then you know that it's a quality assured product. And, and if it isn't informed sport, then don't take the risk. Brilliant. I'm, I'm sure that'd be useful for many people listening. And you have published a huge number of papers. So you've spoken about some of them during our conversation so far. And it's been fascinating to hear you talk about them. Are you able to tell us what you're currently researching? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we, we have lots of projects ongoing at Liverpool. We work in a big research team. I'm one of the supervisors, but of course we have lots of supervisors. Um, so we have lots of PhD students and postdoctoral students. Some of the projects that I'm currently working on is again, looking at carbohydrate metabolism in muscle with something called a ketone ester and looking at how that influences muscle metabolism. 
Well, you know, I'm I'm becoming more and more interested in projects that actually look at translating the evidence into practice. In other words, the the culture piece and the behavior change piece. Because quite often I think that lack of knowledge isn't the problem. And if you could just apply five or ten percent of the knowledge that was already there in the environment that you're in, then people would get better. So the scientists have the knowledge, but the end user doesn't have the knowledge. And so how can we then make sure that the knowledge that is available is then being transferred into practice? And, and I see this a lot. We've, we've just got funding from the Premier League and we're going to do a research project on academy players. So as I mentioned before, academy boys, and I'm talking 12-year-olds, could expend as much as four, four and a half thousand calories per day. That That's the same, if not more, than an adult player. Wow. The academy boy finishes at school at 3 p.m. They start training at 5 p.m. They train for two hours, five till seven. And so therefore, the, the challenge that these boys and their parents face is finish school at three, rush home from school, limited time to eat, get in the car, drive to training, which could be an hour away for some people, mm. train for two hours, then drive an hour back. And then by the time they get home, it could be half eight, nine o'clock. So you've went from three hours to nine o'clock, six hour period with two hours of hard exercise and probably not fueling. Now the guidelines of what those players need to do are already there. They're in the scientific literature, but I, I stand and watch training with my own son and the amount of parents that come up and ask me is, I haven't got a clue what my boy should be doing before, during and after. Can I have some advice? And so I'm becoming more interested in research that actually solves these real world challenges that most people face. Mm. And, and it's a bit like the old exercise in health scenario, as we all know exercise is good for us, but why do, why do people not do it? Yeah. If you can solve yeah. that research question, so as I said, I'm becoming more interested in less about another muscle biopsy paper and more about actually changing people's behaviours. Yeah, and, and education amongst young people is obviously you know fundamental and so important when it comes to teaching future generations about the importance of nutrition and health. So you know, the role that you potentially make can have to play there in um, getting people's knowledge up to speed when they're teenagers, right at the start of their career, you know, that could be huge for the rest of their, you know, ongoing, hopefully successful careers. Um, so yeah, that sounds, sounds great. And one of your recent research papers looked at female soccer players do you think the research base for elite athletes is equally split, split sorry, between males and females? No, d definitely not. Well, without doubt, it's not comparable at all. I mean, several recent papers have actually done an audit of all of the research in this space. There was even one from a, a colleague of mine in Australia, Professor Louise Burke, who looked at all of the carbohydrate studies that's been done in the last 60, 70 years. And I think it was less than 10% of them had used female participants. So most of the knowledge for female athletes were actually just copying and pasting from male athletes. But actually, if when you look at some of the literature and even the limited literature that is there, I'm not sure the guidelines need to be different, if I'm being honest. Female athletes still need to fuel, they still need to eat carbohydrate, they still need to eat protein. 
But a bit like I mentioned before, the, the practical challenge of implementing those guidelines with the female athlete seems to be different and seems to be harder. And I think that's where the real challenge is, is, is changing the practices of those females, which I think is easier in the males. And a lot of that becomes back to the whole culture around the body image piece, the fueling piece. And when I mentioned the piece about the lionesses before, in that qualitative piece, we, we use the COMB framework, the behavior change framework, to analyze the interviews where C stands for capability, which is knowledge, O stands for opportunity, and then M stands for motivation. And we were looking at transcripts and data that was coming back a lot around the opportunity. So one was the physical opportunity. So some players were reporting, I'd like to eat more today in my club, but there's no food left because the males have eaten it all. So the physical opportunity to engage in the behavior of fueling wasn't there because there was no food. And the social opportunity is all around the cultural norms of the environment. And so therefore, if the coaches are placing emphasis on body composition, body weight, then the culture isn't conducive to fueling. The culture around social media um, and the, de the desire or the pressure to look a certain way, then may not be permissive to fueling. So when you look at that behavior change lens, and you think about capability, which is knowledge, we can teach people the best knowledge in the world, but if the opportunity to then engage in the behavior isn't there, then the behavior doesn't happen. And then last but not least is the motivation piece, and that's all around beliefs. So you could have reflective motivation, which is beliefs about what is good and bad if I engage in this behavior. And again, we were having girls coming back saying, um, carbohydrate makes me fat, I'm afraid of carbohydrate. We actually titled the paper Carbohydrate Fear. Mm. So these these players were having a reflective motivation, a belief that carbohydrate makes you fat. So then they won't engage in the behavior. Yeah. And I mean, carbohydrate is definitely, there's it's a lot of controversy around glucose monitoring. And, you know, that, that the word carb is still, you know, demonized, sadly. Um, so I think we've got a long way to go, unfortunately, um, in terms of changing that mindset as a general population, not even, you know, just talking about athletes. Um, but do you think the Lioness's success, obviously they, they did absolutely amazing. Um, you know, do you think that their, their right, you know, rise of awareness of, of female sports and, and the fact they did so well will positively impact the balance or should I say imbalance in research? Definitely. I mean, the, the Lionesses is a great example because um, like real credit to that team and the, and the FA at the time, the FA funded our research. So they wanted to learn the nutritionists at the time, Chris Rosimus, James Moorhen, Sam McAfee, our PhD student, they, they really went after that nutrition culture and, and they really targeted it and they sat down and they coached and they educated players, staff, stakeholders, and now you see lots of the players, high-profile players, speaking out, and the culture has changed, and, and that team really fuels well. I mean, the, the, they are a perfect example of a sports team. When you shine a light on something and you give it a little bit of intensive care, you can really get after it and make it better. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're a beacon of excellence for other teams that want to look at how you can change a culture. Yeah, perfect. Amazing. That's so good to hear.
So finally then, for those listening who are looking to start working in this field or in sports nutrition research, what would be your top tips? Well, I should say, actually, there's never been a better time to enter the sport nutrition industry because there's more and more jobs becoming available. It's one of the fastest growing areas of sports science. But when you, when you strip it right back, like anything in life, you have to have a real passion to start with. And that passion in this world for me is just exercise and health. You've got to like, you have to love exercise. And, and if you don't, if you're not intrinsically in love with sport and exercise, then forget about it. You may be in love with nutrition, but in this context of sport nutrition, I think the sport and the exercise comes first. So first of all, is having that passion for exercise. Um, and then secondly, if, if you've decided, right, this is the career I want to go down, like anything, you've got to go and learn from a reputable institution. And And I would say, because of the applied nature of this career path, you want an institution where the um, staff are experts in research, but also experts in practice. And that is so important. I mean, sometimes I'll go in and I'll be taking lectures where I'll talk about just as much about what's happened in my world as a practitioner as what I would in research. And I'm we're trying to create students who just get the research-informed practice. And you can't really do one without the other. So secondly, pick a good institution. And then probably most importantly is, is when you leave your formalized studies, your career doesn't stop, it just begins. That's the beginning of your career. And then you have to have that thirst and desire for knowledge that you can always get better. And once once people get their head around that, that there's always a better way. It's just so invigorating. And it, mm -hmm. you just realize there's no end. And I, and I think a lot of people struggle with that, Corinne. They they think that actually I'll be okay once I get to this stage or I'll be all right when I get to that stage. But there is no end because there's always a better way. Yeah. And if you can find a mentor who can mentor you through that journey and, and coach you that you can always do things better, they are worth their weight in gold. Mm -hmm. They are worth their weight in gold. I was very lucky in... One of my biggest mentors was Sir Dave Brailsford, the team principal at Team Sky and formerly British Cycling. Wow. Also Professor Steve Peters, who's a clinical psychiatrist. And those two individuals, in terms of performance, I would say were my biggest mentors because they just taught me that you can always be better. Mm -hmm. um, well, then I've also had mentors in the nutrition space. A good friend of mine, Graham Close, would be a mentor. We're collaborators, we're friends. So just surround yourself with as many good people as you can and and be a product of the environment that you're in. Because if, you, if you're in the wrong environment, you won't grow. Yeah, yeah, totally. So lifelong learning. And someone told me once to build a mental boardroom. So almost imagine, a visualize a table around you. Who do you want sat on that table that's going to help you and guide you to make the right decision? So it sounds like you've had a few mentors along the way. So uh, yeah, that's some great bit of advice that i'm sure many of us will find find useful so thank you i think that's a great analogy that you've used yourself because you can very quickly realize that if the right people aren't sitting around your boardroom then you need to change yeah yeah and that, that takes courage i think a lot of people get too content sitting at mm. that room but if you just yeah. left that seat and went next door you might find a better boardroom mm -hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. Growth comes outside uh, outside your comfort zone, as they say. <laughs> well, thank you so much, James, for coming on to the podcast. It was such an interesting episode. No problem. Thanks for the advice and the, and the opportunity. And and I hope um, I hope we get some more sport nutritionists off the back of this episode. Hundred percent. I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as I did and a huge thank you to Nuoutra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, why not share it with a friend or colleague who you think would find it interesting? Our next episode of the Dietitian Cafe will be out soon, but in the meantime, you can check out our previous episodes or head over to our RD2B Dietitian Cafe podcast, where once a month, our student dietitian host discusses the world of dietetics with a range of guests, all aimed at aspiring dietitians. Thank you for joining us at the Dietitian Cafe and see you next time.